0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Content to Classroom, a podcast created and produced by the Virginia Council for the Social Studies, where we connect expert analysis on a specific topic related to social studies, and then supplement that analysis with guidance from master teachers on how to apply it in the classroom. I'm your host, Sam Futrell, and we are so glad that you are joining us today. For today's episode, we are continuing our partnership with the Virginia Holocaust Museum, to discuss how to understand and teach about genocides in the 20th century beyond the Holocaust. In this episode, I interviewed Tim Hensley, director of collections at the Virginia Holocaust Museum, and Jason H. Nishimi, Richmond local and survivor of the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda. Jason was born and raised in Rwanda, and he is now the founder and president of the Human Rights and Justice Foundation. He has been an activist for human rights and crime prevention. And Jason, at the age of 15, and his wife, Francois, at the age of eight, both survived the 1994 genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda. As public speakers, they share their experiences as survivors because they believe it is in everyone's best interest to support victims and strive for forgiveness, peace, and reconciliation. Tim joined the Virginia Holocaust Museum in 2004 as the Director of the Carol Weinstein Holocaust Research Library. He moved to his current position in 2013, where he continues to serve as the modern genocide specialist for the museum. His graduate work focused on preservation and access to post-custodial primary sources, and his research focuses on the use of oral history in constructing collective memory. His recent papers include Give Sorrow to Words, Narrative Voice and Genocide Testimony, We Cannot Destroy Kindred, The Role of Family in the Lives of Holocaust Survivors, I Did Not Interview the Dead, Approaches to Interviewing Survivors on Tragic Events, From Creation to Donation, How Archivists Empower Hidden Communities. Jason and Tim and I actually talked so long in this episode that we had to divide it into two parts. So this is the first part of the episode where I introduce Tim and Jason and we explore the concept of genocide itself, what it is, the stages of its development, and how to teach it in the classroom. And our second part of the episode, which will launch launch in the next week or two, will focus specifically on Rwanda. And in that episode, you'll get to hear Jason's story in more detail. I do want to provide our listeners with a content warning. Some of the information shared in this episode is quite graphic and may not be suitable for younger audiences. With that being said, I hope you gain some strong insights from this episode, and I hope that it makes you feel more comfortable and confident in teaching this tough topic, but very important topic in your classroom. Hello everyone, welcome back to Content to Classroom. I am your host, Sam Futrell. Uh, Today, we are here with two guests to talk about the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda and about genocide in the 20th century. Uh, Tim and Jason, welcome to you both.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: So, Tim, let's start with you. Uh, you work at the Virginia Holocaust Museum. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to work at the Virginia Holocaust Museum?
2: I came through uh, sort of a traditional uh, training as, a, as an archivist. Uh, I went through grad school um, to become an archivist and came into this profession really in a kind of circuitous way which is probably true of a lot of folks um who do this kind of work i actually started doing oral histories back in um my junior year of high school i had a high school history teacher who decided when we got to uh, the vietnam era that he wanted us to actually learn how to do oral histories and then set us up to do oral histories for this uh project of interviewing Vietnam vets who had um, who had come back and 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 sort of relate relating their experience and these were of course all vets who were living in in the community Um, I started doing oral histories then uh, and moved from that project as I left high school I eventually started doing uh, other projects with other organizations throughout the years that were doing interviews with World War II vets And then by the 1990s, by the time I was getting ready to go to grad school, I'd started doing interviews for other organizations um, to do uh, uh, interviews with Holocaust survivors. So I'd started doing interviews with Holocaust survivors back in the 1990s when I uh, was attending grad school. So a lot of my graduate work, even though I was studying, um, you know, archival studies, wound up being informed by the oral, the oral history work that I was doing as well. Um, so by the time I came to the museum, the the job that I had applied for originally, um, and much of it is still the same, was really focused on building collections, as well as curating the oral history collection. And that was the piece that really appealed to me because i had been doing that kind of work, um, really, since the 1990s. And By the early 2000s, I had started moving into um, interviewing modern genocide survivors as well, particularly Cambodia and Rwanda. Uh, So it was sort of just a natural progression into the field, if you will.
0: Yeah, that's extremely interesting, I think, especially too, um, as an archivist, to get into uh, collecting oral history so young, you know, that right. um, you definitely found that passion at an early age. Um, and obviously, if if no one is familiar with the Virginia Holocaust Museum's collection of oral testimonies, I mean, they are extensive and really, really incredible and such a resource for students and teachers and just anyone who is willing to learn about um, the Holocaust and uh, the genocides, both in Cambodia and Rwanda. Mm -hmm. So if anyone isn't familiar with the Virginia Holocaust Museum, could you just explain what you all do there and sort of how you all serve the community, teachers and students?
2: So the Virginia Holocaust Museum was founded in, in 1997, and it was founded Uh, by three, three individuals. One was uh, a survivor, um, a Lithuanian survivor. Uh, The second was an artist. And the third was a local businessman. And the three of them are the three partners who who founded the museum back in 97. The idea like is is similar to almost any of the sort of smaller or medium sized regional museums is sort of how we refer to them things like Houston, Dallas, um, even Uh, the Los Angeles Holocaust Museum, all sort of came about in similar ways. And that is that the survivor communities kind of came together and decided, you know, we want to collect this um, in one place. We want to collect these these, uh, stories and these experiences in one place. And that's really the impetus for a lot of these types of museums. And in a sense, their their true community um, archive, sort of archive backbone, because there are museums that come out of this, this, uh, this sort of um, push to preserve the memory and the stories and history of these people um, who are living in a particular community. Um, And typically, you wind up having what we see is you wind up having Holocaust museums where you have a large concentration of survivors. Uh, Richmond was one of those places, Richmond served as sort of a hub um, for uh, survivors who were coming in in the 1950s, 1960s. So so there were a lot who were settling here. Um, but that was true of all of Virginia, we wound up with a lot of survivors in, um, you know, the Tidewater area, the Hampton area, um, some over in the Shenandoah Valley as well. And certainly um, quite a lot in the in the DC area in the northern Virginia DC area. So that's sort of how the museum started, and um, really one of the mandates for the museum has always been education, and it's really been the education of uh, middle and high school students. Obviously, the Virginia SOLs uh, target uh, middle and high school students to to basically learn about the Holocaust, and so that's where our emphasis sort of lies, although we branch out from there as well. We, we do end service for all kinds of groups obviously Um, we have a lot of teachers resources we do a lot of workshops Um, we do workshops that are both created internally as well as bringing in external um, education components to to basically uh, provide teachers with more resources Uh, and of course the museum is like any other museum in that we have lots of resources which are just readily available and i i encourage anybody who's in education and who's teaching in a classroom who wants to use primary sources, uh, make friends with your local museum. Doesn't matter what subject you're, you're talking about. If there's a local museum that has uh, that has a collection that's appropriate for that, reach out to them and find out what they have that they can help you uh, put in front of your students. Obviously we're, we're really big on using primary sources in the classroom and on helping um, students understand how primary sources become history. Um, And so I I do encourage teachers to do that whenever they can.
0: Yeah, and I just wanna echo that as well because as a teacher who has been using um, your resources for several years, ever since I started teaching in Virginia, um, you all are so incredible not only at curating your your resources, but also in just responding to emails that uh, we have. I think that, I don't know, I, it seems like such a you know, small thing. But I think when you're in the classroom, you know, things go so quickly. And so you may be using, you know, a source the next day and you realize you didn't have, you had a question about it. And I know, Tim, I reached out to you because I was working on a project with my students on these oral testimonies and my students are in seventh grade. And so I wanted to know, you know, are any of the testimonies from the Holocaust survivors, are they going to be, you know, too intense for my seventh graders. And you were able to respond to that within 24 hours and give me a list of ones to avoid. And so, and Megan is, um, Megan Frenzy is uh, helpful like that as well. So just again, just to echo, reach out to your local, um, your local museums. They are just such Vast, vast um, wells of knowledge uh, to help you uh, in your classroom. So, how have you all been doing during the pandemic, Tim?
2: Not, I mean, not too bad. Most of the museums in the in in the Richmond Metro area have been kind of working together. Uh, There's there's a regular uh, there's sort of a regular um, series of uh, chats and hangouts for different departments from all the different, you know, museums around the Richmond area. Um, So for example, we have a a curator um, chat that we drop into uh, every couple of months. And you know, it's, it's really about sort of keeping everybody on the same page as to what the other museums are doing and how we're managing sort of the workloads that we have in a very different environment. Um, So it's been really helpful is you know, sharing information and sharing sort of the process that we've come up with in order to work in a, you know, because we still have people who want to come in and do research and we certainly want to accommodate that. But at the same time, I think everybody's very cognizant of the fact that we don't want to be, uh, we don't want to be, you know, acting as a, as a site where we're putting people at risk of becoming um, infected. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's so important. And I'm, I'm glad that you all have been able to stay connected. And I know Megan mentioned too that uh, the, they are working on sort of a virtual tour of um, the museum as well. So hopefully that'll be up and running soon. Um, and like you said, 15 people at a time can come into the museum. So that's great. Um, that's a good number to bring in um, for teachers looking for resources and other things like that. So Jason, I wanna come over to you and just uh, really briefly have you introduce yourself. Uh, We are so grateful to have you on the podcast here today. Um, And I wanna get to your story of how you survived uh, the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda. But um, I also just wanna briefly hear how you got to Virginia and um, how you became connected with the Virginia Holocaust Museum.
1: Uh, that is a good, <laughs> good question. Um, my name is Jason. I am, um, have a long name, Jason Havaganchimye, and I know it's a difficult to pronounce it sometimes, so many people call me Jason, and I am okay with that. So, um, as you say, um, you know, I have a long story. I survived genocide against Tutsis in Rwanda. And that was back in nineteen ninety four. Uh, it was really a horrible experience. Um, even today, it feels like it was yesterday because how traumatic and you know horrible was and the killing. I can you start from the um, April seventh. Maybe that will help to save time. Because if I start a long way before, it will take longer to tell the story. So, on April 7th, 1994, that's where uh, and when everything turned upside down. And that's when, basically, in my village, uh, I noticed that something was wrong. Uh, So, In the morning when i got up i get up, i got up and i find you know people talking and on the street in in groups and it was very scary and i saw their faces was like not normal faces so i asked my brothers and um and our cousins what is going on who were grown than me and who knew more than i do and um came to the point where i Find out that um, it was rumors that you know uh, we were going to be killed. So uh, due to that rumors, we were scared, and so we ran from home to this complex called Mogonero um, Church Complex. Uh, and because we did before back nineteen in ninety two, and we were able to survive there when we had bad news like that. And many people were killed to, you know, that year too. So we felt like if we go to the same area where we survive, hopefully we will survive again. Didn't it happen? April 16th, about 10,000 people were killed in that complex and I was lucky to survive. And um, I, run, I went to the mountain to hide there. And um, there was another group Number of people about fifty thousand people, and I was hoping that was you know the end of genocide on April sixteenth, but it went on every day for the following three months. So it went on and on. In about fifty thousand people, I found in those mountain hiding called Bicicero area, most of the people were killed. Um, actually. Um, it was less than a thousand survive. Uh, So it was a really horrible experience that I, I feel like is a part of my story, part of my life. I live through it and I, I just feel like I was lucky to survive because I have seen things that a human being cannot feel like it's it's happening. It's real. So, um, that is really, the killing was more animal uh, behavior, uh, cutting people, uh, you know, arms and legs and uh, so it was horrible Um and it's much of those information is more graphic and um, hard to talk about. So, um. To be in touch, um, or to be connected with Virginia Holocaust Museum. I feel like this is my life. I am always looking for where survivors are, to be able to connect with them and talk with them and and ask them some question because I mean, I'm in the process of hearing, but I don't feel like I'm at the end of it yet. So uh, it was my 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 journey in healing process to be able to go to Virginia Holocaust and and talk to survivors and talk to the staff members and I can tell you from day one, I find the team there. We have been in touch since that day. <laughs> so you can tell how connected and how um, meaningful our teamwork and the, um, and the communication has been very important in, in, in my life on my side. So, and I really appreciate their support, and I really appreciate everything they're doing, because it's a treasure and very um, important to the community, to the country, and the world to run from the past and to shape the future because most of the things we see in the past that where we take uh, decision and position how we want our future to be like. So, and what they do and especially the education uh, department, I can't appreciate you enough. It is, it touched my heart every night I think about it when I sleep, and when I get up, so that's how I live. So uh, coming to Virginia, it came um, really <laughs> as a miracle because I had a friend who was in DC and then we talk and talk and then we were talking about moving And he said he was about to move, and he finally said if we decide where to move to, he was willing to move to that area, and because we don't have many family members and due to genocide against Tutsis, our friends, we feel like they are uh, brothers and sisters. So we are very close. So he decided to come and visit uh, Richmond and he liked it and he told me more about Virginia. And I was in Indiana that time and my wife and I, we decided to come and visit and we love it and we decided to move down here. Thank you.
0: Ah, uh, Thank you so much for sharing. And I just, I too wanna say that, you know, I. I think we all appreciate the work the Virginia Holocaust Museum does for survivors um, and survivors like you. And we as educators appreciate you telling your story and sharing that with us. Um, I, I have a few follow-up questions for that. One is just, how did you get to the United States?
1: I had a friend, um, we will. He came in it wonder for a mission for a walk, and we get connected. So uh, through his walk, and finally uh, we were talking about coming here, and and then I got a visa, so I came through uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I end up uh, staying. So. That's how I end up being here. So I don't, <laughs> it wasn't the winter when I came, it was in January. I have never been in weather like
0: <laughs> <Mm-mm>. winter
1: time. <laughs> so it was really funny. I came with a small shirt with no sweater or a jacket. And he came to the airport and he said, oh, where is your jacket? I say, oh, I don't have it. I don't need it. <laughs> he said, do you know snow? I say, I never had that word before. <laughs> so, so he said, guess what? That is very cold. You can't get out of this airport until when you have a jacket. Was, um... It was very scary. But I say, I don't get cold. I don't use jacket back home. <laughs> so he said, oh. This is not like that. It was funny. So he went and get the jacket, bring it to the airport for me to wear, so I can get out of the airport. So you can tell I was not that prepared in seasonal and weather, um, you know, side. But I never forget uh, what kind of service I receive it when i got here
0: um oh man moving to minneapolis i mean you chose the coldest city that, <laughs> that you could
1: yeah Did you- i didn't know <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um. Did, okay, so a follow-up to that then, did you, did your wife come with you from Rwanda or did you meet your wife in Minneapolis? And then if she did come with you, did she bring a jacket to Minneapolis?
1: No, she was not here yet. So what happened, I came first. We were fiancé back home. Before we got married, I decided to come. So she was in Rwanda at that time. There was no way I couldn't even tell her what is going on. She was busy in, in school and they were not even allowed to have a cell phone back then, because of, you know, it was a new system. They were trying to figure out uh, how the kids can manage those kind of devices. So what happened, uh, she came two years after me. So, and that's, you know, she, you know it was easier for her because i already had information and um, experience to share with her
0: oh good well i also just briefly before we start diving into some content i also am wondering you know for you as a survivor you know you mentioned that you you, know, you experienced you know this this it's incredible trauma for months and months. Does it does it help to talk about it or or is it still, you know, really hard? Is does it do you feel like that is sort of part of your healing process talking about what happened to you or is that more to you almost like a service that you're sort of doing for uh for the world, honestly?
1: I do feel like the, what I do is more service to the world and a gift to the future than hearing due to I, um, I know that if I don't tell what I know, it will be hard for people to learn from the past. So as the witness, I feel responsible for telling the history so we can uh, decide and shape our future. However, doing this, I find myself stronger as I keep talking about it, even some topic touch me harder and bring me to that emotional moment. And um, especially when I talk about my wife, The experience because we were in the same mountain and hiding in the same place. She was she was in she was eight years old back then. So, but we were hiding in the same area for that time. So, and when I talk about other kids and the the horrible things I have seen, and you know, women were killed after they opened their abdomen, take the kids out with those who were pregnant and they crushed the kids on the ground on the trees. I have seen those things on, you know, many times. I have seen many people um, being killed and opened their chests and killers took their heart out and kill and eat it as fresh. I have seen people buried alive and um and one they put on the cross until when he died. So some topic and some area of my testimony is very, very hard. And it, it, it touched me as a human being because uh, it's a part of my trauma, I feel like. Uh, so those things, uh, when I get to them, I take a second to talk about it because it, 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 it gets me. Even when sometimes I feel like, okay, I decide I'll talk about it today, I feel okay. But in the middle of it, and I feel very emotional. So, however, um, I don't regret what I do and what I say because um, I'm not the same. I feel stronger than 20 years ago before I start giving more testimonies. And now I do on a regular basis, so I feel more stronger. And I I know many survivors, especially from Rwanda, who survived genocide against Tutsis. Like 99% you don't even hear their testimonies because they can't even open their mouth. They are very hurt. And they we, we don't, even when we try, when we are together as survivors, they don't want to talk about what they have seen you can see how traumatic they are. So for me to be able to talk about it, I feel like it helps.
0: Well, again, we appreciate you um, being willing to share with us and at any point, if you need to take a break or you know step back for a minute, just feel free to let me know, okay? Thank you. Um, so Tim, let's go back to you for a little bit and just sort of for you know, our, our teachers who are in the classroom. And uh, you know, I think more so what we're talking about today is going to be geared more towards high school teachers you know, and, and even co- you know, uh, professors uh, at colleges as well. I think um, it would just be helpful you know, just to start really simply. What constitutes a genocide when we are talking about genocide in the 20th century?
2: The, the, the simple sort of nutshell explanation for what, what would constitute a genocide or what a genocide looks like really comes down to one group attempting to eliminate another group. In other words, a group of perpetrators attempting to eliminate a group of victims. Um, Now, one of the things that happens is you you can have that group defined in a whole variety of ways. It doesn't have to be necessarily a religious group. It doesn't have to be a nationality. It doesn't have to be an ethnic group. It can be any of those. And in many cases, we see genocide, Uh, this is uh, particularly uh, easy to see in in Cambodia, we see genocides where they are essentially creating groups in very sort of uh, not haphazard ways, but in very non-traditional ways and in ways that we don't typically look at groups of people. Um, and that, that was one of the things that, that was happening in Cambodia. One of the key factors, particularly if you're talking about a legal definition, is this idea of intent, that there has to be an intent to eliminate a group of people. It doesn't matter, again, how you, know, how you, de- how you define or categorize the group, but there has to be this, this actual intent. Um, and in most genocides, and particularly genocides where you have a group of scholars who've studied it for, for years or decades and, and have gathered you know a lot of primary source material about a, a particular genocide, typically you can see through documentation a very clear intent by perpetrators. Uh, to commit these atrocities, um, it's certainly the case in you know the Holocaust and in, in in Europe and you know in Eastern Europe, and it's certainly the case in Rwanda. It's the case in Cambodia. It's 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 fairly easy to see the intent when you look at the actual structure and the documentation.
0: So that's interesting to me because, um, you know, if we're talking about a legal definition of genocide, would that be for a genocide to be recognized by the UN? It, it, there has to be a clear, um, a clear assertion of intent. Um, or are we talking about, I guess my question is, are these, these, uh, multinational organizations like the UN that are looking for intent because with the Armenian genocide, it's just being, you know, potentially recognized right now by Biden in our country. um, And that had clear intent as well. So what would you say in response to that?
2: So typically when we're talking about intent in the legal definition, we're really talking about intent where a court of law is going to come into play. Mm -hmm. And you know the big, obviously, the big uh, examples of that happening are with the Holocaust, with uh, Cambodia, with Rwanda, and with Bosnia. In all four of those cases, you have tribunals that are put together afterwards, where they're actually looking at the crimes that have been committed under you know this this sort of international umbrella of. Of crime that has you know that we classify now as genocide. In many cases, um, you have people being tried for what we would what we would typically refer to as slightly lesser offenses. Um, they may not be charged with genocide itself. They may be charged with um, with crimes against humanity, um, or they may be charged with uh, in inciting mass murder or something similar, but typically those tribunals are being held because there is some sort of legal finding that is filed at the beginning that highlights the atrocities and puts them under that genocide umbrella, if you will.
0: Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So what are the major genocides of the 20th century that teachers should be really focusing on in your classroom. You mentioned Bosnia, Cambodia, uh, obviously the Holocaust and Rwanda. Um, So are those kind of the four key ones that you would say, or would you also include Herero uh, as well as uh, Armenia and even others in that?
2: Uh, Certainly. And I think I'm going to have to kind of go out in left field here and say that I think it, in my opinion, I think really that it's if you're gonna if you're gonna cover genocide in the classroom, there there are several things that I think teachers really need to consider. I've, first of all, some of them have to cover certain genocides because of SOLs or because of uh, the curriculum that they're teaching. Um, and so so certainly you have to approach those. But if, for example you are, Um, an English teacher, and you want to bring, you know, a a literature piece in where you're going to use some kind of piece of fiction to talk about a genocide uh, that that possibly ties in with a social studies um, unit or what have you. Really, what I encourage teachers to do is teach about what they're, teach about the genocide they're comfortable with, and that they're actually going to be passionate about. Because without those two things, these are, you know, these are large complex events that are going to get really problematic if you're not willing to do a little bit of work on the, on, on the front end to really get yourself familiar with what's happening. Um, and I think if you're not comfortable with something, and, and this is, I think this is especially true in a social studies class where you have a limited amount of time and you're not covering you know, the histories of certain regions very much. And so, you know, if you're not covering, you know, the, the history of what's happening in, in Eastern Europe and in the 1980s, 1990s, you know, sort of that fall of the Soviet, uh, the Soviet uh, Union and, and, and the lead up to the sort of disintegration of Yugoslavia, then you know, it's going to be really complicated to try and teach the Bosnian genocide, which is a really difficult genocide, even to teach to adults. So for for students, it's going to be even worse. And so I think, you know, having a knowledge of the of the particular uh, area and the particular history that you're dealing with is a huge benefit, obviously. And but also just just having Having an event, you know, picking picking one of these, if you're just going to teach one, pick, picking one that's that in some way speaks to the person who's actually teaching, because that le- you know, if you have some passion for what you're seeing, and you feel compassionate for those who survive this particular event, then that is going to naturally feed into your classroom discussion, and and that's obviously hugely important.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think that it's, you know, when we are teaching about these things in our classroom, we have a huge level of responsibility. Um, and what the responsibility, I think, you know, number one, in, in my opinion, is to get the facts right, you know, and that takes a lot of work. Uh, and, and, you know, it takes attending workshops from experts, you know, it takes studying um, and reading books and keeping up with the literature on these topics. And that's really hard. So I think that, you know, what I'm hearing from you is, you know, teach something that you're comfortable with, that you do feel like you have done the work of really getting into the background of, um, and so that you can also teach it in the context of what else you're learning in your classroom. Um, for instance, I mean, I just would, I agree with Bosnia. I mean, I find that genocide very hard and difficult to teach. Um, And I, you know, that is one that maybe I have sort of strayed away from just because I don't feel confident in it myself. You know, I feel that I am still I still have um, misunderstood uh, major aspects of it. But in Cambodia, that to me is a little bit more accessible because I have done a lot of work um, with East Asia and sort of laid that foundation of what was happening both in the Soviet Union, in Mao's China, in Korea, Vietnam, and then that leads us to Cambodia, you know? So it kind of feels like a more natural progression in the classroom, um, and it feels like a little bit more, um, there's a little bit more context for my students too um I go was ahead gonna, Jason
1: yeah I was gonna add something a little bit um, that you know genocide is a topic that many countries try to stay away from due to the implication and the law uh, responsibility however um, if an individual choose to use the word genocide many times they they are, m- they they are targeted by other group of people because they don't want that word to be out and for that reason um it depends which position we choose to be in either to speak up or just teach something that has been proved and uh, you know and um and officially uh, accepted by many um institution to be taught what I'm trying to say like in wonder if this genocide activities started back in 1959 when um, when you know many people started being killed because as as we know um, as definition for genocide it say genocide means, any of the following act committing with intend to destroy in whole or in part a nation, ethnic, ethnical, racial, religion group, uh, as such as killing members of the group, causing serious body or mental harm to members of the group, deliberatory, inflicting on the group, condition of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in the war or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent birth within the group, possibly transferring children of the group to another group. When you look on that definition, as uh, you can talk about genocide in many parts of the world because there are many victims who were um, who went through this kind of uh, experience. However, many organizations such as the UN and other government facilities um, they really don't recognize all those crimes as genocide. For example, in back in 1963 in Idwanda, on Christmas, there were 20,000 people were killed because they were Tutsis. Some news, they already, um, they send messages outside and especially in Europe saying that there is a genocide happening, but it took from 1959 until 1994 for UN to recognize genocide against tutsis in Rwanda. so you can see how long it took so genocide as such it may take long for people to say this is a genocide and the organization to approve that is a genocide but doesn't mean it started when they approve it it may start a while ago and some speakers and uh activities um and um Human rights and other uh, organizations may speak and speak up, but nobody try to hear a little bit people uh, try to, you know, to share the information. But I will give the example from the fact that in Rwanda, when that genocide happened in 1963, the government of Rwanda sent a delegation to Europe to justify that that killing. So you can see it is something hard to talk about because the people behind the killing always have the power to turn down the voices of the victim. And then after people start, you know, when the voice of the victim is higher and people try to speak up and uh, in that area or outside of that country, then... The pressure goes to those uh, organizations to to treat it as genocide. So it's more political than a human rights um, thing.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a really good point, Jason. Because you know, as um, we are studying you know, these things in our classrooms, you know, I think it is important to give that nuance to these events and to say that, you know, there is an element of politics to all of these events, an element of international politics. And like you said, just because something isn't recognized by an international governing body or by the United States as a genocide, doesn't negate the fact that it happened and that it was what it, oh, it was a genocide in and of itself. So I think that that's a really important point. Um, and like you said, you know the, um, the victims of these, of these events are the ones who are being marginalized. And so of course their voices are going to be suppressed for as long as possible. Um, and the actions of these countries and of these groups, that are the oppressors are going to be the ones that are elevated in these conversations first. So it's important to uh, like recognize that as we're studying that as well. Um, I think too, you know, that kind of brings up this sort of comparative aspect of, of genocide, um, you know and I think, you know, as we are looking at different genocides in our, in our classroom, I think that the, uh, the Holocaust is obviously, you know, most frequently taught uh, in the United States curriculum. Um and I think there are many different reasons why that is. Um but I think it is important to have a comparative element when we are looking at genocide, um, especially putting the context, the Holocaust in the context of other more modern genocides. So Tim, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that and Jason, you can feel free to jump in as well.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it can be fairly uh, informative to actually look at multiple events and to uh, again, you know, this is going to be one of those cases where you you really need the time to get into it. And that's obviously uh, a problem for, for a lot of teachers is, is just having the time to actually get into two or three or four events. Uh, one of the interesting things is is I think if the, you know the more of these events that you actually look at and you examine and you listen to, um, survivors, talk about their experiences, the more you notice uh, how these events are entirely different and yet very similar. Uh, there, there are certain key elements that are always there, that are always present. Um, these events are always organized. They're, they're planned in, event, in, in advance. Um, the perpetrators are always very methodical about dehumanizing the victims the the organized the killing is always organized in a in a very specific way it's different for each genocide but it it is very uh, very organized um, depending on depending on which one you're looking at and I think those kind of elements are are really um, are really a key component to understanding how these events are similar Um, they all have their own unique sort of features, if you will. It doesn't really matter which one you look at, you're going to find something that's different than the others. I will say that one of the things that I find interesting, and and it's one of those one of those things if if you have a chance to look at multiple instances of genocide, and you actually have a chance to bring in and or listen to oral histories from uh, survivors from all of these different genocides that you're studying, what you will find up, wind up um, finding is you'll find that the, the experience of the survivors are very similar. Um, you can tell that if, if I have a Cambodian survivor who's talking about being in a labor camp their experience is going to sound, you know, if you if you're just listening to their experience of a labor camp, their experience of a labor camp is going to sound very familiar. If you've listened to a survivor from the Holocaust talk about their experience in a labor camp, it's it's um, it's it's a very similar feel to it. Um, obviously, they're t- two totally separate events. They have different, um, uh, totally totally different. Um, uh makeup to them and uh, and in many cases they have a different sort of structure to them but the survivor's experience often winds up feeling very similar um, when you listen to them we do always caution teachers though you know when you're when you're doing these we're not trying to compare anybody's pain you know we're not we're not looking at these to determine which one was worse than the other that's not, you know, that's not in our, our agenda at all. Um, we're we're really here to inform people about tragedies that have happened. is really is really the point. Um, and with genocide, you're really looking at that that point where um, a society basically tips into this violent uh, response to a group of people, where they are attempting to get rid of them. And so you you are looking at this sort of unique experience, um, even though the events are totally different. Uh, the other thing I might add is that one of the things that we always caution teachers on, and I'm, I'm always surprised at how often it, it, it happens, is we always caution them against using any kind of simulation in the classroom. Uh, simulations used to be very popular uh, probably 20, 30 years ago. And, and we still hear of incidents where um, teachers are using simulations. And anytime you're putting students in a, in a position where they're representing one group over another in, in, in the throes of a genocide is a, a pretty risky maneuver. And Ultimately, you're not going to be able to recreate anything that you really think you're going to recreate. It just there's there's no way to do that in a in a classroom setting.
0: Right. We are going to wrap up that episode there. If you enjoyed today's recording, um, we do ask that you like and subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes as it helps others find this podcast and hopefully be able to use it in their classrooms as well. And again, if you like this episode, we ask that you come back in the next week or two as we launch part two and you'll get to hear Jason's story in more depth and learn more about the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda. As for the Virginia Council of Social Studies, we have so many things happening this summer. Uh, We are on summer break and we are having fun, which means to us that we are going to go on some field trips. So if you can check out our Instagram and Facebook, you will get all the information that you need on those field trips that are happening around the state. We have some coming up to uh, the John Marshall House in Richmond, uh, the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library in Staunton and the National Museum of the Marine Corps up in Quantico. They are going to be a lot of fun, um, and you can register for those, again, using the links provided on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For all of those, you can find us at Social Studies, all one word, and we can't wait to see you all in person sometime this summer. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next week or so with our second part of Genocide in the 20th Century, focusing on Rwanda.
2: Oh,